Okay, while everybody's coming in and finding their seats, good to see everybody here and a lot of you who uh, helped out with Vacation Bible School. I've never heard as many glowing reports from so many people about how well things went and uh, just want to really express our appreciation to uh, Mark Friedrich for putting everything together and for all the people and volunteers who were part of it that this is just incredible. It is so important. Part of our responsibility at the church is to be an adjunct to parents to train the next generation in the scriptures, and that is really important. And that's, of course, the um, one of the most important things that parents do is to train their children in the Word and to read the Bible to them and to teach them the Bible and there are a number of different uh, curricula available through places like Answers in Genesis, where we got the curriculum for the uh, Vacation Bible School, that are designed to help parents teach and train their children. And, and the most important training time is but from the day they're born until they're about 12 or 13. That's the most important. That doesn't mean the rest isn't important after they're 13, but that lays the foundation, and the more you get done in that time period, the better it's going to be afterward. And I'm convinced that that the more Scripture you can memorize or your children can memorize before they're 17 or 18, the better it's going to be for them the rest of their life because that scripture gets in their soul and that is what God the Holy Spirit uses to bring it to recall. And um, and I know that many times, I remember the first year I was in the pastorate and I would be teaching and all of a sudden a verse would come to mind that I hadn't thought about with reference to that lesson, but the Holy Spirit would just constantly be bringing these verses to my mind as I was teaching. And that's because I spent a lot of time both in Sunday school as well as at home and at Camp Penile memorizing a, a lot of scriptures. So that's just an extremely important thing. Sometimes parents say, well, I just don't have, I mean, I got three kids, I got four kids, I got one kid, I got a job. I don't know when I can find time for me to personally read the Bible. Well, kill three or four birds with one stone, read the Bible to your three kids, and that hits it all at one time. Think creatively. All right, um, Scripture says that when we walk by the Spirit, we are, God the Holy Spirit's working in our lives to help us understand the Word and to produce that which has eternal value, described as gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the judgment seat of Christ. But when we sin, we're not walking by the Spirit, so we need to confess sin, and that restores us to fellowship. It just puts us back in a position where we can realize the potential of our spiritual life. Nothing automatically happens unless we engage our volition in terms of studying the Word, thinking about it, and applying it. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer and to give you the opportunity to make sure you are in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have a great salvation. We're thankful for the evidence that you've given us in your word. We're thankful for the fact that we, you expect us to engage our minds and to think about your word, to think about the rationales that are embedded in your word, to think about the evidence that you set forth in your word, and to realize that our relationship with you is not one where we put our brain in neutral. Faith is not, as some people say, emptying out your mind. It's not the absence of thought. It's not even the absence of logic or evidence. It is biblical faith is based on understanding your word, which involves reason, involves evidence, it involves logic, but it is not independent. Fathers, we continue our study understanding the evidence of Christianity, specifically in relation to the resurrection of Christ. We pray that you would help us to 
uh, understand these things, to assimilate them, to make them part of our mental package so that when called upon to witness, that when asked a question about the resurrection, we can give clear and cogent answers and direct people to more significant uh, information. And now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to assimilate what we learn, that we can apply it consistently. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in our 19th installment on giving an answer, an applicational framework from uh, from 1 Peter 3.15, which is a passage that we stopped on because the exhortation, the challenge, the mandate there is that we all need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We need to know what we believe, and we need to know why we believe it. And we can come to Bible class, and we can hear somebody teach it, but unless we take the time to take notes, to sit down on our own with our Bibles, to work through the information, that's how it really becomes embedded in our soul, not just uh, answers in relationship to why Christianity is true, but all areas of biblical study are that way, that we need to have that time where we think about it in a more personal sense, in terms of our own personal personal study. Now, the area we're in now is dealing with the resurrection, the evidence of the resurrection, which is, for, uh, for many people, the most important aspect of Christianity. Paul says so. Scriptures indicate this, that without the resurrection, there is no biblical Christianity. Last week, we looked at it in terms of the evidence, uh, or the week before, the evidence of Christ's death. Then last week, we looked at it in terms of the burial and what was involved in the burial and what was involved in, uh, in the tomb itself. This week, we're going to look at what happened to secure that tomb, and that relates to the seal, the guards, the nature of the Roman guards, the evidence of the empty tomb, how we know that the tomb was empty, uh, the grave clothes that were seen in the tomb, the evidence there, as well as the post-resurrection uh, witnesses. So when you think through this, I want to come back at the end of this, probably next Thursday night, and summarize this in terms of like putting together five or six categories. And, and most of this you can summarize pretty quickly, at least in your head, or recognize what, what the evidence is, so that it becomes... Uh, more usable when you're uh, witnessing to somebody. So in this last part of this series, as we've looked at the basic questions that unbelievers might ask, or even some unbelievers, questions maybe your your kids ask. And one of the things that you might be interested in is there's a series of books that um, uh, Answers in Genesis puts out called the Answer Books. And we've got those back in the uh, in the library. And you can look at those, but they're just questions that many people ask about the Bible. What about this? What about that? And, and they give very good one or two paragraph answers. It doesn't go into things in a lot of detail, but they're very good. I remember when I was in college, I got a book by Henry Morris, who was the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, called The Bible Has the Answer. And it was about a 250-page book that was just a lot of questions. And I read through that and just learned a tremendous amount uh, of how to answer the kinds of questions not only that that, uh, unbelievers ask, but that, that Christians ask. So these are just three that come up. Can we trust the Bible? What's the evidence for the Bible being what it claims to be? Second is, who was Jesus? Understanding exactly who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, who he is, and um, how we know that he is what he claimed to be. And then the third question, did Jesus really rise from the dead on the resurrection? And so we've already spent two, uh, two nights on this, and we'll spend tonight on it and probably wrap it all up uh, tomorrow night. So the basic passages on the resurrection itself are Matthew 28, 1 to 10, Mark 16, 1 to 11, Luke 24, 1 to 12, and John 21 through 18. You might want to add 1 Corinthians 15. They're not dealing with the historical situation. That's Paul's, as it were, theological defense of the resurrection. 
Now, as I've addressed this in terms of basic questions that are topics that you need to think through in regard to the resurrection, there's the burial. We looked at the summary of the passages last time and what they talked about, and then began to look at the securing of the tomb. And we stopped just about when I finished up talking about the seal that was placed on the tomb. And so tonight I want to go through what we know about the guard at the tomb and then the evidence of the desertion of the disciples followed by the reality or the fact of the empty tomb and the grave clothes, what the disciples saw when they looked in the tomb and how the grave clothes were left and then the post-resurrection witnesses. Just a reminder, in Acts 1-3, Acts 1 at the beginning summarizes what happens just before Jesus ascends to heaven. And in Acts 1-3, in the first three verses, Luke is summarizing what he has said earlier in the Gospel of Luke. And he says that, talking about Jesus, he said, and the disciples, he said, to whom, that is the disciples, he also presented himself Alive. That's the resurrection. They knew he was dead, and they, it wasn't, and one of the complaints is, well, maybe Jesus passed out. Well, if Jesus just passed out and then he showed up, that's, they were smart enough. They're they're not these backwoods rubes that don't know anything. They are smart enough to be able to determine if he's been raised from the dead or not. And what would one of the evidences be? that it would be clear that he was not in his mortal body. Well, he would just materialize in the middle of a room, or he'd walk through the door. Uh, he would do things that you couldn't do in a mortal body. And the scripture says that he presented himself by many infallible proofs. It was evident to So again, it's not that we don't believe in evidence. It's how you use the evidence and that those that evidence indicates that Christians don't believe in a vacuum. We're not just believing something because it's a nice story and somehow it gives meaning to our lives. Uh, we don't look at, at what we believe as, uh, as some sort of psychological drug that gets us through life. Marx is famous for saying that uh, Christianity was the opiate of the masses. And that's just not true at all. There's evidence, there's factuality, there's historical evidence and proof that you can go to. Now, there are people who are going to say, well, we just don't believe it. Well, there's always going to be people like that because the bottom line is volition and choosing whether or not you want to believe. It's not a knowledge issue. It's not an IQ issue. It's not an intellect issue. It's a spiritual issue of submission to God, Romans 1, 18 through 22. So he presented many infallible proofs of his resurrection, and he was seen by them for 40 days. So they saw him in lots of circumstances. They saw him eat and drink. They had breakfast on the beach there at the Sea of Galilee. They saw him uh, in Jerusalem before they met him up in Galilee, and they heard him teach and many other things. So at the end last time, we looked at the burial, or at the beginning rather, we looked at the burial and talked about the significance of what is said in the scripture, the evidence that's presented about the fact of his burial. The week before we saw that he died, it was clear that he died. You can't get away from the, from the evidence that he actually died and that he was buried and then that they secured the tomb. Then I showed you a few pictures of different first century tombs that you can see in uh, Galilee and also around Jerusalem. You can't see the empty tomb that Christ was in because that is hidden in this thing called an edicule, which is built over nothing. It just built over a flat slab because uh, the uh, Muslim Egyptian uh, caliph in the 11th, early 11th century, just obliterated the hill that this grave was in. He wanted to obliterate all evidence of Christianity. But you have these places, just, just if you just look at this picture, 
you can see that uh, through these arches at the bottom, there's a couple, some openings. And if you go through this opening, that's a full-size uh, doorway, and you make a left, there's a room that has these old tombs in it. And you can get down and you can look inside, you can take pictures and use your flashlight. And so this shows that this area uh, that the edicule is built over and in all this area was uh, uh, at one time in the first century was an area where there were tombs. And so that's why the scripture says that there was a garden nearby that those tombs were there. Israel and, and, and Jerusalem are very small, small areas. That surprises a lot of people. But it, in fact, it wasn't until the late 19th century that you had the first uh, first settlements outside the walls of the old city developed. So it was larger than the old city at the time of Christ, but uh, due to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 and then again in 135, through most of the period from 135 up until the uh, late latter part of the 1800s that you had, you, you didn't have any settlements or any suburbs, everything was inside the, the, the walls of the old city of Jerusalem as we know it today. The idea in the tombs, as I pointed out, was that you would bury the body in a tomb, not bury it underground, but you would put it in a tomb. You would go back a year later after the body has completely decomposed, and you would collect the bones and put them in a bone box, something called an ossuary. And we've recovered many, many of these. And then that's how they would reach their final, final burial. At the tomb, there was a seal placed on it. We looked at this last time. Now, these verses are very important. We'll go through this again when we get to Matthew 27 in our study of Matthew, which isn't that far off. Where after the, you might want to turn with me. We're going to spend a little time on these verses again. Matthew 27, verse 65 and following, but I want to start just before that. In verse 62, it says, On the next day, that would be the day following the crucifixion, which followed the day of preparation. Now, what we'll see is a day of preparation is a technical term. It's not used of preparation for, for Passover. It's used for preparation for Shabbat. And that's important. A lot of people have taken that term to talk about Passover so they can move the day of crucifixion away from Friday to Wednesday or to Thursday. But when you study this and its usage both in the scripture and outside, it's a technical term for the Friday before Shabbat, preparation for Shabbat. So the next day the chief priests and Pharisees come to Pilate. And they say, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be far worse than the, than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. We saw this last time. The word for secure is the word aspelizo, and it means to make something secure or to make something um, make something safe. It is uh, secure, and you do it by sealing the stone, and that's the word. Sfragizo. Now that word is the same word that is used in Ephesians 1.3 that we have been sealed by means of the Holy Spirit and in Ephesians 4.30 repeating again that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. So this is an important term. This is a literal seal that is securing the tomb and that relates to our understanding of our eternal security because we have been sealed. That secures us. We've been sealed by the Spirit, and we've been sealed for the day of redemption. God has put his seal on us so that we won't lose our salvation. Now, this is one artist's depiction 
of that seal, a rope going across the rock and being secured in uh, both this artist's conception, the one you'll see in a minute, secured by nails into the rock, and then they would have placed a wax seal on that, and it was a uh, a penalty. It was a penalty punishable by death to break that Roman seal. So this is very significant that this is sealed in that way. Today I spent some time reading through some of the comments on various uh, blogs related to the resurrection, and one of the objections that came up again and again by uh, somewhat caustic unbelievers that, that shows that they weren't thinking too deeply about this is that when you look at the uh, context of Matthew 27, it's clear that Jesus went into the tomb fr- Friday just before sunset, and he's been in the tomb, no guard, all night, and a little bit the next morning. So their contention is, well, gee, they could have stolen the body overnight. Well, that's not giving much credibility to these professional guards and executioners in the Roman um, Roman army because if if that body was stolen, they were going to die because they failed in their mission. And so when they went to the tomb, given the mission to secure it to make sure no one stole the body, the first thing they would do would be to look inside the tomb to make sure the body was still there and that they wouldn't be caught by surprise. If they got there and the body wasn't still there, then they would go back and report that. So they would have made sure that it was still there. So this is the idea in the seal. There was a guard at the tomb. Now, what do we know about a Roman guard? Here is another artist's depiction of the tomb with a guard detail in front. Now, think about that picture a minute. Look at that picture. What do you think is wrong with that picture? How many guards are there? Three. How many do you think were there? More than three. And so often we have these misconceptions that have come out in pictures. We talk about, what, the three wise men? Uh, and they're not wise men, and they're, they're magi, and they're not three. There were, there were three gifts, but there were many more than three. So we have these things that Christians sort of pick up inadvertently over the years through the mistelling of the story. And so we have to understand that, that this perpetuates a misunderstanding that there were only two guards or three guards. And then if one fell asleep or two fell asleep, then somebody maybe came in and could steal the body. So let's look at exactly what is being said here again when Pilate responds to the question. Verse 65, he says, you have a guard. Now, why does he say that? He says that because the request in verse 63 is, or actually in verse 64 is, Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. The Pharisees and chief priests are saying, asking him to command that a guard secure the tomb. Okay, so he has this statement, you have a guard. And we have to understand what that means. This relates to part of the debate and discussion about the nature of the guard detail. When he says you have a guard, he could simply be addressing them as the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and say, you guys already have a guard. You've got the Temple Mount police, uh, and and they can go out and guard the term. So you have a guard, so go, go secure it yourselves. That's grammatically possible because the form of the word echo here could be either an infinitive or, I mean, excuse me, either an indicative which states reality uh, or a perception of reality, or it could also be an imperative. Now, that's the question is, which is more likely that he's just stating a fact? Well, you guys have a guard. Now, some people try to argue that the guard that was placed at the tomb were just uh, temple police. But the context suggests otherwise. First of all, he's responding to this request to command that the tomb be made secure so that 
Pilate doesn't command the temple guard. Pilate commands the Roman soldiers. So they're going to a Roman uh, governor to issue a command to, ser- to secure, and they don't need to do that uh, if they were going to, uh, going to do other than maybe to get permission because it's not certain that a temple, the temple uh, soldiers, the temple guard could go outside of the temple and execute their, uh, their job. The other thing that we see, if we take it as a, an imperative, and he, he's saying take a guard, you have one, take it, go, then it's, it's followed up by the fact that the word for guard is the Greek word Custodia. Where do you think, what English word do you think comes from custodia? Custodian, who clean, that's like a janitor, or custody, which also has a legal connotation. So we get uh, several English words from that, from that Greek word. But at that time, custodia referred to a, uh, a, a, undetermined number of soldiers. It was specifically related to a group of Roman soldiers. So custodia would not be a term used of, of the temple police. So the other line of evidence here to help us understand what is going on and why this is not a just, just the Jewish temple, uh, temple police is what we find happening after the resurrection, after the resurrection. There we see the statement, now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard, this is talking about why the women came and discovered the empty tomb, uh, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. Now, some, of the, some people say, well, see, they went to the chief priests. If they were Roman guards, they would have gone to to Pilate. There's two reasons Roman guards would not go to Pilate. Reason number one is that they would lose their life because they had failed in their mission. And so they're, they're going to go to the chief priest to see if there's some way, some way out of this. Secondly, we see the phrase, some of the guard. Now, what does some of the guard mean? First of all, some of the guard means that others of the guard detail went somewhere else. So some would have gone to the chief priest and probably the others went to report to Pilate. And some of the guard came in and reported to the chief priest. And then we see something happen. They, they come in and report their things to the chief priest and then they bring the elders together and they have a consultation. Well, what are we going to do? The body's gone. We can't let people get the idea he rose from the dead, so how are we going to handle it? And they came to a decision, and they bribed the guards, first of all, to not tell anybody. So that's an indication that they accepted the story that the tomb was empty. That gets to the next point, or point a couple down, when we're talking about the empty tomb. They, the, the religious leaders never disputed the reality of the empty tomb. If Jesus' body was still in the tomb, they would have produced it, if Jesus' body was somewhere around, they would have, and probably did search for it, but because they never found it, there was no evidence that he had not died and that he had not resurrected. So that is an important point. So they, they bribe the guards and they say, well, tell them that his disciples came and stole away. So they're perpetuating a lie, a deception. We're going to blame it on the disciples. Now, that's the earliest attempt to explain away the resurrection. And, and then they said, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. We'll intervene so you won't be punished and you won't lose your life. Now, that's a funny thing if, unless they recognize the tomb really is empty and it's not their fault. I think they realized at some level that that this wasn't the guard's fault. Otherwise, they would have insisted on them being punished, uh, punished as well. Now, the other thing that we ought to talk about in terms of the guard at the tomb is the size of the guard. How many guards were there? And the size of the unit is not specified in the scripture. 
And if you read through various uh, discussions on this, there's some fluidity there. Some people, on the basis of just pure supposition, will say that, that there were probably 30, 40, or 50 guards. But there's no basis for that whatsoever except just sort of what I call autonomous logic. They assume that be, one of the arguments is there were probably two to three million people in Jerusalem for Passover. That's based on figures given by Josephus. If you've got that many people in Jerusalem and the population regularly was probably 150,000 or less, then where are all those people going to be? Well, they're camped out all around the hills, all around Jerusalem. And so even just outside that, that wall where Jesus was crucified and then you have the graveyard, that would have been an area that would have made them ceremonially unclean so they wouldn't have camped there. But they would have camped as close to it as they could have. And so every empty space surrounding Jerusalem was going to be filled with people in tents. And so a lot of those people were followers of Jesus, not just the 11 disciples, So their supposition, which may be accurate, but we have no evidence of it, is that if they're trying to prevent Jesus' followers from stealing the body, they're they're trying to prevent more than just the 11 from stealing the bodies. So the supposition is they would have more than three or four guards there because they wouldn't want to be uh, overwhelmed by a large, large group. And Otherwise, they might be. I think that's just wishful thinking to a certain degree. So we have the, but we have hard evidence of of um, of what this guard detail would be like in the Roman army. The basic unit that was under the command of of a centurion was. Uh, somewhere between um, probably 60 and 140 uh, soldiers. And a small unit was a unit that was described um, as having, with the, by a term that was probably about eight people. That was the smallest unit. So it'd be a little bit bigger than than what we think, or about the size of what we think of in our military as a squad or a little bit larger squads, usually about six or five or six people. So in that view, there would be a minimum of eight guards. Others suggest four guards, but in either case, they argue that they had enough guards to put a full watch, which would be either four or eight, around the tomb in each watch of the night. So there are four watches during the night. So you either have four times eight, which would be 32 soldiers that are watching eight. If eight's the minimum, then you would have eight on duty and the other 24 would be resting, or you would have uh, 12 on duty and the other four, I mean, four on duty and the other 12 would be resting, uh, something like that. So you've got a minimum of 16 guards, uh, probably, watching the, the tomb. At the very least, if you just want to reduce it to, the, to, to minimal, it would be four. But I think it's more along the line of 16 or maybe 32 guards. That's a lot. And you have to remember that, that throughout this period, there have been a number of these messiahs that have come forth that have stirred up a lot of trouble, a lot of rebellion in in um, Judea. And Pilate had put some of these down very harshly already and executed quite a number of Jews. So the idea that something may uh, disturb the peace and cause a problem by a claim that this messiah had been raised from the dead was something that he truly wanted to avoid. So he would have put enough guards on the tomb to secure it and to make sure nothing could happen and the body couldn't be stolen. So the idea that that this guard detail is small, one or two guards, it just doesn't fit the facts of what we know about the Roman army or about the circumstances or situation in in Judea at the time. And it was much more likely to be uh, eight to sixteen that were on maybe as many as as thirty two. 
In terms of understanding the, the responsibilities of the guards, they were responsible for carrying out their mission. And if they failed to do so, the punishment was harsh. The easiest uh, punishment that would come would be having to go through a, a gauntlet of, uh, that, that where the men held clubs and whips and would beat them within an inch of their life. And if they survived, then they would be returned to duty. Also, in many cases, in 40% of the cases where a guard let a prisoner escape, the penalty was immediate death. It wasn't always death, but it was in 40% in of the cases immediate death. So that indicates that they would expect to be treated very, very, uh, very, very harshly. And so when we put that together, we realize that they are going to be highly motivated to secure the tomb and to make sure that body isn't stolen and that nothing uh, whatsoever happens. So it was secure. So we're certain that Jesus died. From all of the evidence, he clearly died. He would not have had the strength to do anything to get out of the tomb. Second, we see that he is buried according to all of the regulations of the Torah and that he's placed in the tomb and then that tomb is secured with a large stone that no one uh, no one or two people could move uh, and then uh, it is secured by a seal and by the Roman guard. Now the next line of evidence for the reality of the resurrection is what happens to the disciples. The disciples fled from Jesus the night after he was resurrected. In Matthew 26, 56, we read, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then, see, this is right after he's arrested at, at uh, Gethsemane. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Not most of them, all of them. They all scattered. Now, I think John came back but initially, they all got out because they could be arrested as being uh, involved with Jesus. And as a result, they too could be crucified. So they didn't want to be anywhere around. So they all forsook him and they fled. Mark says, says the same things. So what we see is that on Friday evening, the disciples are controlled by fear and flight. They're disorganized. There's no cohesion. They're totally under the control of fear. They're afraid of capture, punishment. Peter denies three times that he ever even knew Jesus. And yet, on Sunday, they are willing to proclaim the reality of his resurrection. And they will, none of them will ever turn back. The 11 are left because Judas will hang himself. And of those 11, all but John die a miserable, painful death, taking a stand for the reality of the resurrection. Now, if you know it's a lie, you're not going to give your life for it. They're not going to claim that, that you will be brought back to life just like the Savior was, and so you're not going to march with courage to your death in the Colosseum or in some other horrendous way if you're giving your life for something you know to be alive. Uh, I mean, uh, a lie. So what we see here is something very, very clear, that something changed. And what changed is the fact of the empty tomb. They knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. He appeared to uh, uh, Mary and the other Mary and Salome, and he appeared to Peter and John and then to the rest of the 12, and they all knew that he had been raised from the dead. And what's interesting is in the story the first people that he appears to and the primary witnesses to the resurrection are women. Now, in the first century, a woman's testimony was absolutely, totally worthless and insignificant. So if you're going to manufacture a story and you want to present the best witness possible, 
you're not going to manufacture a story where the first people that the Lord appears to, uh, the resurrected Lord appears to, is a woman. You would never write that. That would be a totally uh, bogus thing to do. It would it would discredit your story from the very beginning. So, in fact, women were not even allowed to give testimony in a court of law unless it was an extremely, uh, extremely rare. Uh, situation. So when we look at the fact of the empty tomb, we need to realize that there's no fact in ancient history that is as well attested as the empty tomb. In fact, in previous generations, this was one of the points that was challenged, but so much evidence has been brought forth uh, from the context of the gospel recordings as well as Understanding the impact that the resurrection had on the on the church, uh, very few, if any, critics try to attack the reality of the empty tomb. What they try to do is explain some bogus way in which the tomb became empty. So, uh, if the tomb wasn't empty, there's nothing easier for the religious leaders of that time to do than to produce the body. If it's a lie and the disciples are going to the Temple Mount uh, 40 days, 50 days later at Pentecost and saying that the tomb is empty and Jesus rose from the dead, all they have to do is produce the body. But if there's no body to produce, then they can't do it. And not only that, but from the account in Acts, that's never challenged. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin never, ever challenged the reality of the empty tomb. They may challenge the interpretation that is resurrection, but they never challenged the fact of the empty tomb. And the Apostle Paul, we must realize, was also, you work out the chronology on the Apostle Paul, he goes to Jerusalem right after his bar mitzvah in Tarsus, and he's 13 years old. And he begins to be trained under Gamaliel for the, uh, for the rabbinical ministry. He is saved when he, he's saved in 39, okay? He's saved about six or seven years after the, after the crucifixion. So by the time we see the Apostle Paul, he's been per- persecuting Christians for probably at least three or four years. He is clearly in his um, in his mid to late twenties. So let's take the fact. Let's just assume he's twenty five. That's a young age. Twenty five. That means he's been in Jerusalem for thir- since he was thirteen. He's been in Jerusalem for twelve years. If he did not begin to persecute any Christians until thirty, right before he was saved in thirty nine. Let's say he began in thirty eight. 12 years earlier is 26. 26 is four years before Jesus started his public ministry. So, so Paul was probably at least 17 or 18 years of age, maybe older, when Jesus began his public ministry. So the whole time that Jesus is in uh, in, in Galilee and in Jerusalem, the whole time that Jesus is conducting his public ministry, Saul of Tarsus is part of the Pharisees that are, that are being trained and functioning in Jerusalem. Most people never put that together. But chronologically, Saul of Tarsus had to have been there. So he would be very much aware of the claim that the tomb was empty. And yet, he, he's not one who doubts that. He's not one. He's trying to quiet the people who are making that claim, but he never, never, ever refuted that. And if the tomb were not empty, he never would have believed. Why would he believe a claim that the tomb was empty if he knew that it wasn't? So it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever for anyone to claim that the tomb was was uh, actually not empty. In Acts 1, 21 and 22, we read, Therefore, these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us 
of his resurrection. This is Peter talking when they're going to replace Judas among the the disciples, and it's going to end up being Matthias. But the point is, he's saying it has to be someone who's a witness of the resurrection. And what I'm pointing out here is starting with this, these couple of verses in Acts 1, all the way through Acts, you have one statement after another uh, affirming the resurrection. Acts hangs on the reality of the resurrection. Without the reality of the resurrection in the disciples' mind, nothing in Acts was going to take place. In Acts 2, 23, to, uh, 23 and 24, and then 31 and 32, Peter is preaching, and in verses 23 and 24, he talks about Jesus as being crucified and put to death, and he's the one whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. And in verse 31, he talks about the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did he fleshy corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, of whom we are all witnesses. That's at the very core of his message on the day of Pentecost. Then the, the next day, he's, uh, he and John are back at the temple, and again they emphasize in verse Acts 3.15, that you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And then in verse 26, to you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sending him to bless you. In Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 10, they talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In Acts chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. In Acts chapter 10, when uh, Peter is going to Cornelius, and Cornelius is a centurion. That, that's kind of a combination of a first sergeant or sergeant major and a company commander within the Roman army. These guys were tough, and they were knowledgeable, and he is living in... Uh, uh, he's not living in a vacuum. He's living in Caesarea by the sea, and he would have heard all of these things by this point. It's about probably two, three years or so after after the crucifixion. And so when Peter comes to him, he talks about Jesus as the one whom God raised up on the third day. You see, their message over and over again is always built on the uh, on the resurrection. Acts chapter 13 when Paul is taking the message to the Gentiles, God raised him from the dead in Acts sixteen in Acts thirteen thirty. And then he emphasizes that he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses. And it goes on in the uh further in Acts chapter thirteen talks about the fact that Jesus um uh that Jesus was raised from the dead, quotes from uh, Acts uh, chapter 16, you'll not allow your Holy One to see corruption, that this could not have referred to David, but it referred to he whom God raised up and saw no corruption in Acts 13.37. Then in Acts 17, when he's in, um, in Athens, and he's talking to the philosophers there, he preaches to them Jesus and the resurrection. And he says that God has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Acts 26, 23 says that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And then in the epistles, you have Romans 1, 1, 4, that... uh, God declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Romans 6, 5, we've been united together in his likeness and death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is a defense of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Resurrection is at the heart of the message. It's at the heart of Peter's message. In 1 Peter 1.3, talking about our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in 1 Peter 3.21, again talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So this is foundational to the whole message all the way through, um, all the way through the the uh, Gospels and the Epistles. The foundation of the Christian message is on the reality of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the next line of evidence comes from what Peter and John saw when they visited the tomb. When they came in, John runs up and he stops and he looks in, and Peter, who's always the bold one, runs right past him and goes right into the tomb. So what do they see? Well, this is the grave clothes issue. What exactly do they see? We read in John 20, Peter therefore went out after he heard from Mary that Jesus wasn't in the tomb, went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, so they both ran together, and the other disciple, that's always, John never names himself, he's always the beloved disciple or the other disciple, so that's how we know it's John. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. So the, 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 these were the grave clothes. He, Jesus, the, the, the body was taken and he was wrapped in strips of linen. And then they put the spices in there and wrapped those in with those various strips of linen. And then they would have taken a separate cloth and they would have put that around his head to cover his face. And so when that body is then placed on the ledge, when his body dematerializes, the strips of cloth that are covering his body, just without a body there, they just fell flat. And then separate from that, you had the uh, cloth that covered his head, and that just fell flat. They're not scattered. It's not, it wasn't as if somebody stood up and is pulling all of the linen off of him and all of the grave clothes off of him because that's what would have been necessary with the myrrh and the spices I pointed out last time. This would have caused that linen to stick to his body, to adhere to it like, like adhesive tape, and that doesn't come off in an easy, neat manner. It's not going to be all uh, folded up afterwards. It's not the idea that it was somehow... Uh, folded, but it's the idea here. We need to look at this for just a minute. The handkerchief. Now, some translations translate that a napkin, and that's led to a one of those internet myths that go around that I'm going to address. The word for handkerchief here is the word sudarion, which means a, a handkerchief or a face cloth in burial. It's not a dinner napkin. Okay, it is a face cloth, and and then when when the body just dematerializes, it's just going to collapse. So it's already been folded around the head, and so that word is intelluso, which means something that is wrapped up or rolled up, as it would have been a rolled up uh, uh, the way it was placed around the head. So it's just talking about that wrapping. It's not talking necessarily about something that is neatly rolled up. So let me read this thing to you that I, I get this about once a year. It's amazing how many people will read this, and because they're not well taught or informed, they think, oh, isn't that just wonderful? Christians are the most gullible people in the world, and we shouldn't be. We should be critical thinkers. Okay, this is what it says. The Gospel of John tells us that the napkin... See, that's not even a good translation of that term, that the napkin which was placed over the face of Jesus was not just thrown aside like the grave clothes. They weren't thrown aside either. You've got to think critically. The Bible takes an entire verse to tell us that the napkin was neatly folded. Oh, isn't this just speak to your heart? I know I'm being facetious. The Bible takes this, uh, it goes on, early Sunday morning while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John. 
She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb to see. The other disciple outran him, blah, blah, blah. When Simon runs in, he notices the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying to the side. Was that important? Oh, absolutely. Is it really significant? Oh, yes. In order to understand the significance of the folded napkin, you have to understand a little bit about Hebrew tradition of that day. The folded napkin had to do with the master and servant, and every Jewish boy knew this tradition. When the servant set the table for the master, he made sure that it was exactly the way the master wanted it. The table was furnished perfectly, and then the servant would wait just out of sight until the master had finished eating. And the servant would not dare touch the table until the master was finished. Now, if the master were done eating, he would rise from the table, wipe his fingers, his mouth, and clean his beard, and would wad up that napkin and toss it onto the table. The servant would then know how to clear the, would then know to clear the table. For in those days, the wadded napkin meant, I'm done. But if the master got up from the table and folded his napkin and laid it beside his plate, the servant would not dare touch the table because the folded napkin met. Are you ready? I'm coming back. Oh, praise God. I just get, I hate this stuff. So then it says, if this touches you, you may want to forward it if you're a fool. Okay, I shouldn't be that caustic towards my Christian brethren, but it drives me, it's always driven me nuts, the silly stuff that Christians will believe that don't have any, first of all, this, this makes several errors of fact. It's not, it's just collapsed. It's not like folded out, number one, number two. Number one, it's not a napkin. Number three, this whole idea of this tradition is I, I can't find any documentation of that from anybody. And I think one of the most knowledgeable people that I know on this is Randy Price, archaeologist, PhD, studied over there, done a lot of work, and he's never heard of this. I've asked numerous scholars about this who've specialized in this, and nobody's ever heard of this. This is just something some well-meaning preacher made up, and it sounded good, and people fall for it because it's, it, 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 it fits their prejudices. And we've got to be better than that. It doesn't fit any kind of exegesis. So we, we just can't go along with this kind of silliness. One of the great lines of evidence for the resurrection is the post-resurrection witnesses. Now, in a court of law in America, how many witnesses are necessary to confirm something? Two. Now, they can be two people who were eyewitnesses of a crime or it can be DNA. DNA can stand as a witness, as a legal witness. It's an impersonal witness. Or fingerprints can stand as a witness. But you have to have a minimum of two witnesses. And two, wit- two or three witnesses will verify a fact. Where did we get that? We got that out of the Mosaic Law in Leviticus that according to the law of Moses, this was the uh, Torah, that any charge against anybody had to, be, uh, uh, had to be validated by a couple of different witnesses. You can't just have people making stuff up out of thin air and accusing somebody of something and have it taken as, as true. That's why that they were trying to find witnesses, the Pharisees, we're trying to bribe witnesses to bring some accusation against Jesus because they needed to have at least uh, two or three witnesses. So according to law, all you need is two witnesses. But Jesus appeared physical, physically and bodily to over 500, some of whom did not believe the resurrection before they saw him, others of whom were able to touch his body. They sat down with him, they ate with him, they drank with him, they observed, they saw him materialize and dematerialize and pass through the walls and the closed doors. They were eyewitnesses. And not just one or two, but over 500. He appeared to Mary Magdalene in Mark 16:9 and John 20:14. When he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
John 20:14 says, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But at first, she didn't know that it was Jesus. She, he appeared to the women returning from the tomb in Matthew 28, uh, 9 and 10. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet, and they worshipped him. So they, they touched him. He was. They knew it was a, it was a physical body, but it wasn't like the body he'd had before he died. Okay, let's look at some other. Some of these passages are pretty long. That's why I didn't put them up on the screen. He appears to Peter. Third section. He appears to Peter later in the day, according to Luke twenty four thirty four, and First Corinthians fifteen five, and Matthew twenty eight nine. And as they went to tell the disciples, Jesus met them and said, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped. Oh, that's a, I'm sorry. That I'm out of, I didn't get the right verses in there. Luke 24, 34 and 1 Corinthians 15, 5. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll look at what's listed there. Because you can break each of these down. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is outlining the evidence. Verse 4, he says, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for for Peter. Actually, it should be pronounced Cephas. He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So he lists uh, Peter's first, and then he appears to 500. That occurs up in Galilee. And Paul says, of whom the greater part remain to the present. If you don't believe me, you can go to Israel and you can interview them. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So he's seen by the eleven plus James, the half-brother of Jesus, and and Peter, who's one of the eleven. Then last of all, he says, he was seen by me also. He appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and this is in Luke chapter 24 this is one of my favorite stories I was going to spend a little time on this we're not going to quite finish everything tonight maybe I'll come back and talk about this a little bit that's on the the road to Emmaus Emmaus is a small village outside of Jerusalem maybe maybe five miles away and these are two disciples now they're not part of the eleven they are two disciples, followers of Jesus, students of Jesus, and they're going to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talk together all about all the things that happened. They're just, they can't understand. Now, this is Sunday. The resurrection occurred that morning. They don't seem to know about the resurrection yet. So they're, they're going home dejected, defeated, in verse 15, so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. God the Holy Spirit put a veil over their eyes so they didn't recognize who that was walking with them. Just another traveler who came up and started to engage them in conversation. And he overhears what they say and he says, well, what are you talking about? What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleophas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and you have no knowledge of the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Now, that's a verse I haven't seen referred to in too many places, and I ran across it when I was studying for this a couple of months back. If this is Sunday, and this is the third day, Saturday was the second day, and Friday's the day it happened. Certainly can't get three days and go back to Wednesday. That's impossible. 
You might be able, through finagling the idiom, get to Thursday, which a couple of people I know have tried to do, but that just violates the, the normal use of language. If Sunday's the third day, you can't get far beyond Friday as the day of crucifixion. That pretty much puts the nail in the coffin for the Wednesday crucifixion theory. So they say today is the third day. Literally, that's what they're saying. Today is day three. Now, they're not saying three whole days or 72 hours. They say this is the third day, period. Really clear. So what, are they, what happens after that? They say, yes, and certain women of our company arrived at the tomb er, early, astonished us. So they had heard of the resurrection. When they had not found his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. See, they, they, they haven't been able to process it yet. And so now I'd love to have been in this Bible study because in verse 27, Jesus goes back to Moses and he starts at Moses and all the prophets and he expounds to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that would be a Bible study to be in. Starting with the Torah, he goes through book by book, chapter by chapter, to show everything that points to him. What a great episode. But he's now has appeared to those two on the road to Emmaus. And then he appears, and I have some other passages I want to read through before we summarize everything, so we'll come back to wrap this up. But it tells us that there are uh, there's objective witnesses to the resurrection. That this isn't something that people just made up down the, down you know ten, twenty, thirty years later or a hundred years later. But there, but at, at the time that it occurred, there were eyewitnesses, and they wrote it down, uh, and it was such a way that that you could tell people go talk to so and so. In fact, we read a couple of uh, weeks ago that that Ignatius uh, is writing. He's a disciple of John the Apostle, and he writes in one of his uh, epistles that it was on the road that that um, that at, at his time there were still people alive who were witnesses of the resurrection. Maybe they were children at the time, and this was some seventy years later. But he knew of that. There was evidence of that. So this isn't something we just believe because it's a nice story or because it's something that we were told by our parents, but we're smarter than they were. That's that, those are the things that people try to, especially college professors, try to get to kids on. There's evidence, and we use our minds to analyze the evidence, and the evidence validates what Scripture says. Father, thank you for this time to go through this evidence on the resurrection. Father, we pray that you would help us to be well prepared to be able to communicate this to uh, people we witness to, and people who are believers maybe that are uncertain of their faith. Because if the tomb is empty, then nothing else other than our Christianity makes sense and nothing else other than knowing you and understanding what the Lord has provided for us is, is important in our lives. That should govern everything. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. In Christ's name, amen.